God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. Some of us are afraid of our shadows. Some of us are afraid of the next moment, the next day, the next test, the next event. And so it grips us and it drives us. Some of us are afraid of what's going on in our culture today. I wrote this message three weeks ago. Now, in the first five minutes, you're going to think I sat down and wrote it Friday and Saturday. And so just to set the record straight, that I'm not preaching to react to the culture. I'm preaching because God has spoken to the culture before we have to react to it about how we are to live and how we are to act. How do we act in a nasty world? We're in the next to last message in the Fruit of the Spirit series on Kingdom Attitudes. As I was going through my files a few weeks ago, I found this article from U.S. News and World Report. Now I want you to listen. Dated April 22nd, 1996. The cover page was entitled, all caps, in your face, whatever happened to good manners. The article stated that Americans are rude and crude. A whopping 89% agree that incivility in America is a serious problem. 78% believe vulgar behavior has gotten worse in the past 10 years. Now, would you agree with me that if it was bad in 1996, it's worse today? We're in a mess. You don't know who you can trust. You don't know who you can listen to. Our postmodern age rejects right and wrong, and right is what I think, and wrong is what you think. That's because we took prayer and the Bible out of the schools, and so when you take moral authority out of anything, then every man does what's right in his own eyes, and there's no king in Israel. So then your right may not be my right, but you don't have a right to tell me that my right is not right. And that's the world we live in today. How do we respond to that? We get toe-to-toe. We go at each other. A 20-year-old young man was killed two nights ago in Louisiana, a junior basketball player, because he got in an altercation at a bar. It happens every day. It happens every night. It happens across our community. It happens across every community because we have forgotten just simple civility and gentleness. I can't name a politician right now or an actress or an actor that acts with civility. We have no role models for our children. We should be embarrassed as adults that we have elected people that act like they're in a middle school playground fight and we keep voting the same people into office. We should be embarrassed that we give our hard-earned money to go watch movies of people that would, if they could, destroy the very fiber of what you're trying to build into the lives of your children. We do not understand gentleness. The more violent it is, the better it is. The more vulgar it is, the more money it makes. Surely, believers could offer up something different. 
gentleness begins with surrender. You don't hear that word gentleness anymore. I don't know the last time I heard the word gentleness, but it's a biblical word. It's also translated meekness. It can be translated humility. Gentleness is very close to the word patience, and you'll see that. When you think of patience, patience is the ability to endure hostility without anger. The ability to endure hostility without anger. Gentleness is the ability to endure without aggression. One is without anger, the other is without being aggressive about it. I'm not talking about being a wimp and being a pushover because gentleness is the strength of the Spirit of God under control in our lives. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, the meek shall inherit the earth, the gentle shall inherit the earth. We've misinterpreted that to think weak, but that's not what it means. If you interpret gentleness and meekness as weakness, you haven't read your Bible. Here's what the word means. The word implies a soothing quality, a thoughtful and considerate outlook when our passions are harnessed for the service of men and God. A soothing quality, a thoughtful and considerate outlook. In other words, gentleness when I am controlled by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life, then gentleness holds itself in subjection to what God would do if he were in this situation. It reserves its energy to accomplish God's will. It does not mean saying nothing, but it is to be firm without rage. Paul argued to the Ephesians that they were to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Here's the thing that we need to understand. The gentle person would rather crucify self than glorify self. I would add to that. The gentle person would rather be quiet than to start a fight. They would rather crucify self, not what I want, not what I want to see happen, than to glorify self, than to make self the one that everybody is talking about. What they should talk about is there's a person under the control of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I can't do that. You're exactly right. You can't. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to do it. You see, the reason we're out of control is because we think we can do this by trying harder. I'm going to be gentle if it kills me, but if it doesn't kill me, I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's kind of our attitude. But the only way you and I can practice this fruit of the Spirit is when the Spirit of God is controlling our lives. It doesn't have anything to do with your personality. You say, well, I'm an introvert, so it's easier for me. It has nothing to do with your personality. Somebody pokes you long enough, and you're not going to be gentle, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. This is a character trait that grows out of faith. Look at your notes. First of all, we see it in God the Father. God the Father is gentle with us when he could just immediately judge us. God could have just said, that's it, it's over, I'm done, I'm not sending my son to die for you, and he could have sent everyone to hell and he would have been just in doing it. But it is his kindness that leads to repentance. He is gentle, he is slow to anger, 
He is long-suffering in the way he responds. He's, God is gentle. This world always is asking, where's God in the middle of all this? I said, he is gently patient, but one day he will be judge. Right now, he's gently patient. He's patient. He's letting people see the end of their ways. I mean, nobody, nobody can look around this world and believe in the theory of evolution. Nobody can. Because nothing's getting better. If we were evolving, we would have gotten better than the barbarians of 1,500 years ago. We're not any better than them. So you cannot say, and if you do, it's because you don't believe the Bible. And by the way, if you don't believe the first chapter of the Bible, why do you believe John 3.16? Because the Bible says we were created in the image of God. There is now a group out that says we must evaluate. Now, this is the stupidity of man. <laughs> and it's hard to be gentle when people are this stupid. <laughs> There's a website that says we must evaluate if the life of a human being is more valuable than a chicken. Or any animal. Well, we evaluated that when we decided we'd kill babies in the womb. We decided that the life of a human being is not valuable. We're certainly not gentle in the way we deal with that. The Father's been gentle with us. We've been abusive. We've been neglectful. We've been hateful. We've been unkind. We've been unforgiving. And yet God is gentle. We see it in the God of the Son, in the Son, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus had one plan. His one plan was to do the will of God. He didn't have a separate agenda from the Father. He didn't have a separate agenda that he's left the Spirit to do. He had one agenda, and that was to do the will of God. No matter what it was, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, his agenda was to do the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. Say, well, you know, you can say Jesus was gentle, but, but he got angry. He did. He got angry at the money changers in the temple. He overturned the tables. The reason he did that is because that they were selling and hiking up prices. I mean, this was a rigged deal inside the courtyard of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles had no place. If they were seeking after God, if they were wanting to know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had no place to go to pray because it had been turned into a bazaar. And so he overturned the temples. Why? Because it's a house of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. And what they were doing is they were filling up the only place that a Gentile could go to pray and making a circus out of it or a shopping mall or a flea market out of it. He said, that's not going to happen. The other time when Jesus got firm but never lost control was with the Pharisees. Why did Jesus get angry and rebuke the Pharisees? He rebuked the Pharisees because they were painting a distorted picture of the Father. They were not representing the Father. They were not representing the God of heaven. And he rebuked them and went after them when they painted the wrong picture. He said, well, you know, he should have just let it go. Well, he was the Father manifested in flesh. 
They were painting the wrong picture of him. In fact, they had so distorted the picture of Jesus that when the father showed up in the form of the son, they didn't recognize the resemblance. They missed him. You see, gentleness is active. It's power under control. It's responding at the right time with the right people at the right moment for the right length of time. Tim Ritter said, He, Jesus, treated the wounded with tenderness. People received comfort just by his presence. Even so, he was committed to justice, the hard edge of gentleness. His gentleness did not cause him to ignore wrong and let it go on. He took a strong stand for righteousness out of concern for all people. True gentleness does not cave into evil, but firmly uses the minimum power needed to enforce justice. You don't have to kill a mosquito with a sledgehammer. It's not good for your arm. We should see it in the saints, 1 Peter 2.21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor even deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his cause in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Wiersbe says, it's in your notes, Jesus proved that the person could be in the will of God, be greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. Peter says, we should follow in his steps. Gentleness is revealed in crisis moments. The world today says, don't get mad, get even. Get revenge. Have your way. Don't let anybody push you around. Argue with anybody that you can start an argument with. Here, here's the question. What is it that comes out of us when we're squeezed? I've read the deeper life of famous Christians. I've, I've read books about the martyrs. There's not one historical record of a martyr recanting their faith or cursing the people that were killing them. Not one. And somebody pulls out in front of us in traffic and we post it on social media and we tell all our friends and we gripe about every little offense that ever happens in our lives. We're not the stuff that martyrs are made of. Jesus said, don't hold it against them. Some of you are holding things against people that they did to you in third grade. They're over it. You're just not over it. Gentleness moves on. Gentleness responds the way we would want Jesus to respond to us because we have offended him. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh answer, word, stirs up anger. The crisis moment of conflict, we have to have power under control. When we're in conflict, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us the power to live under control of the Holy Spirit and not react and act in our flesh. 
And that is a daily dying to self. That is a daily taking up the cross. It is not something you do one time at a refresh conference and it's good for the rest of your life. It's daily doing it. How we respond to the desire for control. We want control. All of us want control. I want to control my life. You want to control your life. We want to be in control and we want to be right. And so we get in arguments. And right now we have 24 hours of news media that all it is is listening to people argue over the top of each other and nobody's listening to anybody. You know, there should be like a buzzer that says that person can speak and then you, you can speak, but you both can't speak at the same time. But we become so used to it, now we're talking to the TVs while they're arguing with each other. And they're not stopping to say, wait, we have a comment from Albany, Georgia. Because they don't care. Let me give you how to respond in situations that are beyond your control. In subjective matters, agree to disagree. In subjective matters, agree to disagree. You may not agree with me on everything. I may not agree with you on everything. It, those are subjective things. This is not about right and wrong. This is about things that are subjective, opinions. Agree to disagree. Don't get in an argument over it. In objective matters, be gentle, but don't sacrifice your convictions. If it's objective, if it's, if it's right and wrong, be gentle, but don't sacrifice your convictions. Have you discovered this? You can't change anybody but yourself. You can't change anybody. James 3.16, wherever you're trying to look better, whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings. Not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. It's revealed in how we respond to fear. Fear of failure, fear of being bullied, the fear of losing our health, the fear of retirement, the fear of dying, the fear of being taken advantage of. It's, it's having the right response. When we're afraid, typically we run. We flee. But courage is fear that has said its prayers. If I want to be gentle and be filled with the Spirit and have the courage I need to act in the right way, then I pray, and that overrides my fears. How we respond to sin. Now, let me specifically mention here on how we respond to sin. The sin of others being gentle. The sin of others. Remember, the way you judge is the way you will be judged. The same measure that you use to pour out your wrath will be used by others to pour out wrath on you. So how do we do this? Turn to Galatians 6. 
And after Galatians 6, we're going to go to John 21. Galatians 6. We're not supposed to be ostriches and stick our heads in the sand, nor should we pretend we don't know something is going on when we know something is going on, nor should we say, I sure hope somebody does something about that, and then we gossip about it. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now look at the quote by John Stott in your notes. The correct attitude to other people is not, I'm better than you and I'll prove it. Or you're better than I and I resent it. But you are a person of importance in your own right because God made you in his own image and Christ died for you and it is my joy and privilege to serve you. So let me tell you how that works when it relates to gentleness. First of all, gentleness prays it doesn't point fingers. Gentleness prays it doesn't point fingers. Now, if you can write that down or anything at the same time, do this right here. Just everybody do this right here. Are there more fingers pointing back at you or towards you? Towards somebody else. Which one? Pointing back at you? Every time you point a finger, there's more fingers pointing back at you. You say, well, I know something. Hey, God knows something about you. He could tell somebody. God knows it all. And it's his kindness that leads to repentance. We're easy to point fingers. And by the way, everything about our godless, demon-filled culture tells us to point fingers. The church ought to be a harbor of safety for hurting people, not a judge and jury to destroy people who have messed up. There is redemption in the name of Jesus. Gentleness realizes we're all vulnerable. It makes us say, there but for the grace of God go I. Listen, you ever say, you ever say, I'll never do that. The devil will ask for permission to test you on that. You ever say, I'd never do that. Oh, there's something, no, I'd never do that. Just get ready. You're going to be putting a test on it just to see if you would never, never do that. Gentleness seeks to restore, not destroy. Gentleness wants to get those who have fallen back on their feet again. That's what Paul is talking about in Galatians. Our goal is not to kick them to the curb. Our goal is to get them back on their feet again. Paul's words in Galatians are not about punishment, but about correction. How do we correct the problem? How do we respond? Are we gentle and humble in the way we respond to people when they're in sin? Now listen, Paul is writing this in the Greco-Roman world, which is full of arrogance and pride and boasting. They thought that gentleness and meekness was actually a sign of weakness. Humility was a despised character trait in the Roman Empire. And how did the Roman Empire get changed? By the humble servants of Jesus Christ sharing the good news of the gospel. 
It didn't get changed at a ballot box. It didn't get changed by changing dictators. It didn't get changed by changing the Roman Senate. It didn't get changed by going on a morality campaign. It got changed by one on one and one on one and one on one saying, Jesus died for your sins. And he can save you from your sin. And you do not have to live the way you've been living. And in less than 300 years, the whole empire was changed. In less than 80 years, the gospel had gone to the known world. And they didn't have any of the things available to them that we have to us. The Greek and Roman gods were haughty and arrogant. The gladiators boasted. You were trained to boast and to brag about your strengths. You were trained to strut arrogantly. That was the world in which Paul wrote these words. Ken Bow says, we're in this survival mode. If we don't take care of ourselves, who's going to? It doesn't really smack of anything that has substance to it. It might be okay on Sunday morning, but it's not going to work Monday at the office. And that's where some of you are right now. You're thinking, that's good for the preacher to talk about that. You know, he works at the church. He doesn't live in the real world. Hey, I'm looking at the real world. Y'all need to get to bed earlier on Saturday nights. <laughs> Jesus didn't say the fruit of the Spirit only works on Sunday, but it won't work on Monday. The Bible doesn't say it's only for church time and church people and church groups. The Bible was written to tell us how to live the life of Christ in a world that denies Christ and rejects Christ so that when they see us, they see Christ. That's where we're supposed to be. In the world, but not of it. So that the world sees in us, well, I know how he's going to react. Whoa, he reacted differently than I thought. That's different. Why are you different? So that we can proclaim the hope that is within us. Now, John 21. Actually, go to John 18. I'll give you a little background. John 21 is a restoration of Simon Peter. You're all familiar with that story. I referred to it a couple of weeks ago. But it's, it's the story of the restoration of Peter. He feels like a failure. He's denied Christ. He's, he has uh, been ashamed of his actions. He's obviously on a guilt trip. He's been broken. He's run for cover. I would submit to you that Peter didn't think he was any better than Judas at this point. There's no way he would be restored. But John 21, they've gone fishing. Everybody's followed Peter because he's kind of the unspoken leader of the group. And they're out fishing and there's a smell of a charcoal fire on the shore. It's on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and you smell this charcoal fire and Jesus is there, and it's the same kind of fire. It's the only time it's mentioned is here, and where Peter warmed his hands by the fire. Both were charcoal fires. So the smell would have instantly brought to Simon Peter's mind his failure. And at a smell and a sense, and with the person that Peter had failed the most, the person and the smell came together to restore him. The very thing he thought he would never get. Now how do we know all this happened? How do we know all this took place? So turn back to John 
1815. Because John was there, although he never says, I was there. In fact, John never says, I was there. He always refers to himself as the other disciple. Because he doesn't want his name to be the prominent name here. John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter was following. And I want you to mark these. Mark every time you see one of these. Because I want you to see this, what's happening here. Because somebody, listen, just look at me for a minute. Somebody is going to tell your story. Somebody's going to write your story. The preacher that preaches your funeral, your children, somebody's going to write your story. And it may be somebody that's following very close to you, so be careful. John 18, 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was, here's the first time, another disciple. Now, that disciple, same person, not named, was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So this disciple has gone in with Jesus. Peter is not in there yet. This disciple has followed Jesus from Gethsemane through the Kidron Valley up to the house of Caiaphas, and he is with him close by. He's seeing everything that's going on. But Peter was standing outside at the door. So the other disciple, the one who was on the inside, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. John is the only one that tells this story. John tells this story because he was an eyewitness to both. Listen, this is why Paul's words to the Galatians are so important. John saw the moment of failure in Peter's life, and he also saw the moment of restoration. And in seeing the failure and in seeing the restoration, he says to us, there's hope for anybody. If God can restore one who curses the Son of God as he's going to the cross and denies him, God can restore you. Or the person you've given up on. So, here's John. He's a witness at the trial. Now he's a witness by the fire. And every indication of John 21 is, is that they had the fire. And then the, the indication would be that Peter and uh, Jesus got up and just walked away from the fire a little bit to have a private conversation. Because there's no indication he's talking to all the disciples. So he's having this private conversation, and guess what? So Peter and Jesus are right here, and John's right here. John's just standing listening. That's how he knows how to record what happened. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? That's how he knows how to record what happens. That's how he knows the words that were spoken because he was standing right there. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Jesus confronts him, but he's gentle. Would you have been gentle with Peter at that moment? i tell you what I would have done. I said, I'm going to tell you something, bud. I put up with you for three years, and I'm about up to here with you, and then you deny me at a time when I needed you, you couldn't even do anything but pull out a sword and cut off a guy's ear. 
And then you run when a girl talks to you and says, you're the one that's following Jesus. And you run like a sissy. <laughs> Get out of my presence. Why does John record this story? Because our tendency when we are self-righteous and pharisaical is to say to somebody who has fallen into sin, Get out of my presence. And that's when we are least like Jesus. What Peter needed to hear was that he was restored. What Jesus needed to hear was that Peter loved him. And it brought it back. And all of this was preparation for Pentecost. If there hadn't been restoration, there would have been no Simon Peter at Pentecost. Two things to remember. Failure doesn't have to be final. Failure doesn't have to be final. You say, man, I've, I've got a husband, I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got friends, i got... Man, it, it, it's over. Well, unless God has vacated the throne and put you on it, you don't know that. You don't know that it's over. It may look like it's over, but God always gets the last word. God's still operating. He's still hearing prayers. Secondly, Peter the failure became Peter the forgiven. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> when somebody has failed and then they're forgiven, don't keep reminding them of their failure. You know, I, I, I've been in family reunion stuff where I just wanted to leave because all anybody could talk about is what, where every member of the family had messed up at some point in their life. And you know why you do that, don't you? You do that so you can deflect people from talking about where you've messed up. So the more you can put attention on somebody else messing up, the less people talk about how you messed up. And families do that. People at work do that. People at school do that. But when God restores the fallen and the failures, he also forgives. Titus 3.2, always be gentle toward everyone. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Can I just say gentleness is one of those evangelistic tools that we don't use often enough because it's disarming. It's totally disarming. So let me give you some homework. Yeah, great, homework, good. <laughs> this is just homework, which means the things you've got to work on when you leave church. First of all, be humble before God. Be humble before God. Nobody struts in the presence of the Father. Be humble before God. Remember, there's nothing about you that was worth saving. There's nothing about you that is impressive to God except the blood of Jesus that saved you from your sin. That's what impresses him. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He needs us full of Jesus. Second, be gentle with others. Be gentle with others. Third one, and then I'm going to give you an illustration. Third one, 
is be willing, be witnesses of the grace and love and forgiveness of God. Last year, uh, I, I had this globe on my desk. It was a magnetic globe. I bought it uh, at a store in New Orleans 20 years ago. And the globe was black. It was, I mean, all the water was black. And all the nations were like a bronze colored. And it sat on this little wooden platform. And because of a magnetic field, it would spin around. And it would just go slowly around. And it was about this big. And I had it on my desk to remind me that I serve a Savior who's trying to reach a dark and lost world. And one day, he got broken. And a lady that's worked for us for 25 years, one of the sweetest ladies you'll ever meet. Head down, pastor, I got Ken's first one told me, said she wants to see you. I said, okay. I said, what is it? And she said, she just wants. So she, she's walking me to my office, and she's taking me to my office, and her head's down, and she just whole time, she goes, I'm sorry, Pastor, I'm so sorry, Pastor. I'm so sorry, Pastor, I'm so sorry, Pastor. I'll pay for it. I'm so sorry, Pastor. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. I'm so sorry. And she just kept apologizing. And we walked in, and she just pointed to the place on the desk where it was, that it broke, and I couldn't, I couldn't fix it. It just broke. And I just put my arms around her and said, Pat, it's just stuff. I'll pay for it. No, you won't. It's just stuff. You see, I had an opportunity in that moment. It was a Monday, I think, which is not always a good day for me. <laughs> I had an opportunity at that moment to say, well, couldn't you have been a little more careful? That was not the first thing that came to my mind. The first thing that came to my mind was somebody that felt like they had let me down and what I needed to do was pick them back up. Who's let you down? Who do you need to pick back up? Who needs restoring? Who needs a gentle touch when they're afraid they're about to get a violent rebuke? Who needs a whispered prayer more than a pointed finger? Whoever that is, if it's you, you'll find it in Jesus. If it's someone you'll know, they'll find it when they see Jesus in you. Let's pray. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you would help us to be gentle in the way we live, in the way we act. Lord, there are folks in this room that need to be restored. There are folks in, that room, in this room that need to restore others. God, I pray that when we walk out of this room and head to Bible study in just a moment, that we don't walk out of here talking about what happened in the news this week, but that the name of Jesus would be on our lips. And the kindness and the grace and the goodness of God would be on our lips. Lord, forgive us for the times when 
We let the world dictate how we act rather than letting the Spirit rule how we act. We need the gracious Holy Spirit so that we can be the gentle communicators of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us today by your Spirit to do that in Jesus' name.